This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, January 30th, 2023. Brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, broadcasting from the Tony Snow Studios at the D.C. Bureau of Fox News. Very glad to have you all here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Then around the clock on demand on our free podcast, No Charge Every Day, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I was just told that one of my clips on Instagram going pretty viral. So check us out at Guy Benson Show on those platforms. You can also follow me personally on both Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at Guy P. Benson. Here's our lineup today. Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, will join us about an hour from right now. Carol Markowitz, our friend, will also be here in our final hour talking about news of the day, politics of the day, plus a very exciting announcement from her and another mutual friend of ours. They've written a book coming out soon, and I think it's going to be a good one. So we'll talk to Carol about that. As we come to the air today, here's how I want to start. And I'm going to take some time unpacking this issue because I suspect it's something that is going to come up probably repeatedly. And I feel pretty adamant about dealing with it right at the get-go, right at the onset. Over the weekend, former President Donald Trump was in a number of early primary states. He visited New Hampshire. He visited South Carolina. Reuters describes the appearances as low-key. I saw a couple of clips. Among other things, he was going on about how he thinks he won the last election. So this backward looking thing that he won in 2020, of course, Biden's the president. He described himself as angrier than he has been in the past. But he is making some of these stops actually on the campaign trail. After really not doing all that much on this front, having declared for the presidency just after the midterm elections in early mid-November. He remains, right now at least, Trump does, the only declared 2024 candidate from either major party. So people were commenting on some of the stuff Trump was saying or not saying. What got a fair amount of attention were the broadsides and attacks that he was lobbing at Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Part of this is probably due to the fact that there are some national polls showing DeSantis In striking distance of Donald Trump, some of them have had DeSantis ahead. Others have Trump comfortably ahead. Then some of these primary polls, there was a survey of New Hampshire 
just a few days ago that had DeSantis leading Trump by 12 points in that state, another one having DeSantis ahead in South Carolina. And there's other surveys you can point to with Trump ahead. Whether you think that Trump is the favorite and the front runner, as I do right now, or maybe DeSantis catching up with him or in very good position to take over that poll position, so to speak, what is clear is you've got Trump and DeSantis, based on the current polling, very, very early, possibly meaningful, though. You've got Trump and DeSantis and then everyone else. There is a big, big drop-off into the single digits where you've got Pence, Nikki Haley, a few other people, and then like a dozen or two folks thinking about running for president who are in the 0 to 1% range. Trump, understanding that there's probably one legitimate threat to his path to getting the nomination in 2024, Ron DeSantis, has been coming after DeSantis over and over again. He did it for a while, months ago. Remember, Ron DeSanctimonious, all this other stuff he was saying. It was not terribly well-received among the Republican base, including some people who like Trump. There's a lot of people who really like Trump and DeSantis, and you heard from a lot of those folks saying, you know, what, what are you doing? You don't have to be attacking one of our most effective leaders, popular governors. If you guys run against each other, then you can have at it on the merits. But, you know, the nicknames and the attacks, especially when DeSantis was doing absolutely nothing to provoke it. DeSantis is just out there like being governor. He announced a big infrastructure project today to relieve traffic congestion. That's what DeSantis is up to. Trump is attacking DeSantis. And after taking a bit of a respite from those attacks on DeSantis, he ramped them back up over the weekend. We got the Ron DeSanctimonious line again. A couple sound bites from Trump. In cut 16, he says it would be terribly disloyal, a real act of disloyalty, if DeSantis decides to run for president. Cut 16. So Ron would have not been governor if it wasn't for me, and that's okay. Uh, and uh, he, number one, he wouldn't have gotten the nomination. And number two, he wouldn't have beaten uh, the de- his Democrat opponent. So then when I hear he might run, you know, I consider that very disloyal. But it's not about loyalty. But to me, it is. It's always about loyalty. But for a lot of people, it's not. It's always about loyalty with Trump, he says. That's a separate discussion for another day. I might have a few things to say about that. And perhaps later I'll explore the whole loyalty question. Is it disloyal for someone like Ron DeSantis to run for president against Donald Trump? Again, that is maybe a separate monologue. Perhaps I'll uncork it one day. Not today, though, because Trump went on. This is the other part. I think the loyalty argument is a very weak one from Trump. I'll just put it that way. This one's worse, though. In Cut 17, this is now a bona fide attack strategy. Not just from Trump hardcore supporters on social media, and I see this cropping up a fair amount, but from Trump himself effectively arguing that if you really think about it, Ron DeSantis was the big shutdown guy who screwed up COVID by closing everything down in Florida. Cut 17. Florida was actually closed for a very long period of time. Remember, he closed the beaches and everything else. You know, uh, (laughs) they're trying to rewrite history. They're trying to rewrite history, he says, of DeSantis on COVID. And I would offer, I would submit, that the rewriting of history is being done by Trump on this. One more point 
setting up this whole conversation. I'm going to take my time on this. Trump on his truth social platform over the weekend tweeting about his stops in North Carolina, excuse me, South Carolina and New Hampshire. And he wrote this, quote, the enthusiasm to make America great again has never been stronger. The revelations about Ron DeSanctimonious doing far worse than many other Republican governors, including that he unapologetically shut down Florida and its beaches, was interesting indeed. DJT leading big exclamation points. This is really what he's going with. He's going with Ron DeSantis shut down Florida and shut down the beaches. All right, let's uh, let's fact check that. Which I'm not even sure we necessarily have to in great depth. Florida and the outcomes in Florida speak for themselves. Americans flock to the state of Florida not by accident, not because they were fooled or bamboozled into what was happening there, into believing that somehow they could go and live their lives in freedom, but because that was the actual reality. DeSantis didn't win by almost 20 points in his reelection because he tricked people into thinking that he handled the pandemic well in terms of policy. He won by almost 20 points because he did handle the pandemic well in terms of policy. He actually knew the data. He stood up to the bureaucrats in Washington. He had very credible experts who disagreed with the Fauciest worldview. And he insisted, for example, that schools open up that very next fall. If anything, he said, his mistake was not reopening the schools even sooner. He was attacked. He was sued. He opened up the state's economy, which just exploded. And despite having one of the oldest populations in the country, Florida was basically average in their COVID health outcomes while also opening up, while also not condemning a bunch of kids to the total harmful dysfunction of closed schools and so-called remote learning for a year and a half, like they did in a bunch of blue precincts. Blue states, Democrat-led communities, not in Florida. Right? People don't have to go back deep into the recesses of their memory to recall this stuff. It just happened. DeSantis has caught fire as a political figure because of the outcomes, the leadership and the decisions. And I think people would say if they had not led aggressively and clearly in Florida, it might have taken a lot longer for some of the worst decisions about the pandemic to get unraveled elsewhere. Now, there's this mentality, right, this old adage in American politics that sometimes you have to go after your opponent on his or her perceived strengths. Don't start with their weaknesses. Go right after their strengths. And I think that's what Trump is trying to do here with DeSantis, but... In the process, he's accusing DeSantis of rewriting history while he himself is actually rewriting the history. DeSantis did not shut down the beaches in Florida. In fact, he was pressured and urged repeatedly 
to shut down all the beaches in Florida, and he refused to do it. And you can just Google DeSantis shut down beaches, Florida, March 2020, and it's one headline after another, a lot of them negative, attacking DeSantis for refusing to shut down all the beaches in Florida. He explicitly didn't do the thing that Trump is saying that he did. In the very early days, there were some local communities and county leaders who wanted beaches shut down. So that happened in some parts of Florida. Statewide, DeSantis wouldn't do it. And in April, he was out there urging the local officials to reopen the beaches. Why? Because DeSantis was looking at the data and saying people need to be outside. They need to have fresh air, sunlight, exercise. He was absolutely right about that. That was in March and April at the very beginning. There were some stay-at-home orders. Remember 15 days to slow the spread before that became a punchline? For a very short period of time, like everywhere else, there were a lot of shutdowns in Florida and all across the country. DeSantis was one of the very first leaders to say, this is crazy, this is counterproductive, and we are moving way past this. Trump can go after him for that. Like the little blip of time where there were some shutdowns in Florida. The problem is Trump was president at the time, siding with Fauci. Well past the point where DeSantis started to understand what the data was showing. Like you can look it up late April, way after this whole beach thing, this nonsense Trump is going with. Brian Kemp in Georgia started to partially open elements of the Georgia economy And Trump lowered the boom on Brian Kemp. He and Fauci were like tag-teaming Kemp, attacking him from the White House podium. Too soon, Trump said. So, I mean, if this is the path that Trump wants to go down, trying to basically gaslight people into thinking that Ron DeSantis was uniquely bad as a Republican governor when it comes to leadership during COVID, it intuitively doesn't make any sense because we all just lived through it. And if he wants to go with a side-by-side comparison, I don't think that ends well for him from the perspective that he's pushing here. I've also seen some of the hardcore Trump people going after DeSantis. Oh, he supported the vaccines. Well, yeah, he targeted the vaccines for elderly people. That was always his push. Nursing homes, which he got right, by the way, unlike Cuomo in New York. He prioritized the elderly for vaccines, and he was attacked by NBC for that. Oh, he's trying to protect his own white old voters. No, he was actually supporting the science. CBS News came in and said, look, he's corrupt because he's helping old people get vaccines at a Publix grocery store. And even Democrats in the state were like, that is the lamest attack we've ever heard. And DeSantis crushed 60 minutes on that hit job. DeSantis was against vaccine mandates from the very beginning, banned them in his state, promoted the vaccine, particularly for old people, elderly people, which was the right decision. But if people on the Trump side want to attack DeSantis for that, well, who was the biggest champion of the vaccines in a lot of ways? Donald Trump, who got vaccinated, got boosted. Operation Warp Speed. I think this was one of the greatest achievements of Trump's presidency. And the Biden folks tried to demean it, diminish it, airbrush it out of existence. Remember the fact checks that came flying at the White House when they were pretending like, oh, there was no plan for vaccines. There was no vaccine available when Biden took over. An absolute lie. Trying to steal that credit from Trump. 
But again, if you're a big Trump fan, it's weird then to try to attack DeSantis for what? Being pro-vaccine when he was always anti-mandate and the vaccines were developed, I think, in heroic fashion under Trump, who got vaccinated on television and then boosted. Again, I just don't think that's effective. I don't think that's going to work if you're trying to hit DeSantis. Now, this is where things take a very interesting turn. There is another group out there echoing these attacks against Ron DeSantis, amplifying the Trump attacks against DeSantis. Fascinating, I think very revealing. We'll get into some of that when we come back. Just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Monday. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I'm going to get to this point about some strange bedfellows developing here in just a moment in the next segment. But first, this whole notion, this whole push to try to frame Ron DeSantis as somehow like the shutdown governor, which is what Trump is trying to do. Oh, he's very bad. He closed the beaches. He shut down the state. Again, I think it's gaslighting. And the side-by-side comparison, Governor DeSantis, President Trump, at the same time along the same timeline, making decisions in real time, doesn't reflect well on Trump comparatively. Trump compared to a lot of the Democrats, yeah, way better on reopening schools and that sort of thing. But this sort of counterintuitive effort to turn DeSantis's strength against him has been attempted. This is not novel by Trump and his allies. In fact, it was just recently attempted down in Florida. Here's the governor debate late fall 2022. Charlie Crist tried this. Cut 24. Well, Ron, that's rich. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that's ever shut down our schools. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that shut down our businesses. I never did that as governor. You're the one who's the shutdown guy. We need to have somebody who is at the helm that understands it's important to listen to science, to do what's right, to utilize common sense. You don't just shut down at the outset, and then when it's you know politically convenient for you, you want to open back up to store political points. I mean, absolutely shameless from the guy who was demanding much longer shutdowns for months and suing DeSantis. But he tried that. Hey, actually, you're the shutdown guy. And then you reopened when it was politically convenient. It was not politically convenient. There was a ton of incoming fire against DeSantis, and he actually followed the science and stood strong. Chris tried it. How'd that go for him? 19 and a half point loss for good old Charlie down there. Now Trump is trying it again. More on that as soon as we come back. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. If you're just joining us, we've been talking all show so far about this interesting salvo from former President Trump, who was on the campaign trail in New Hampshire and South Carolina over the weekend. And he was again going on offense against Ron DeSantis. He calls him Ron DeSanctimonious, who hasn't even announced that he's running for president yet. I don't know if he's going to run. I suspect that DeSantis is going to run, that he would like to run. But all indications suggest that if he makes that decision, we won't know it until May or June because he's got to get through the legislative session in Florida first. Right. He was announcing a public works initiative today. He's going to be putting a bunch of conservative wins on the board in the next couple of months. And then if there's an announcement coming, it would come after that. There's a report in The Washington Post suggesting that his team starting to lay out the groundwork to make some big hires and to launch a national campaign, but we're not there yet. But I think Trump sees what might be coming, looking at the polling, which shows DeSantis either his closest rival or even overtaking him some places and certain polls, and he wants to sort of dent the image of Ron DeSantis. He's been doing it for months with the nicknames and that kind of thing. And the latest attack line that Trump is test driving is this argument that Charlie Crist tried and failed in the governor election to basically turn DeSantis's greatest asset and strength against him, saying, you think he's been good on the pandemic and COVID leadership, but really he's been terrible. And he shut down the state and he's a big shutdown guy. And Trump keeps saying that DeSantis shut down the beaches in Florida, which isn't true. He resisted demands that he closed down all the beaches in his state. He wouldn't do that. And people keep pointing to like these occasional headlines from a few blue areas and blue counties where the state allowed closures to occur very, very briefly at the very beginning of the pandemic. But as I said before, you can just Google DeSantis refuses to shut down beaches. March 2020, there are endless headlines that debunk this line of attack from Trump. It's also just on its face, I think, ridiculous. Right. If you are a big Trump supporter, and I know we have some in our audience who very much want Trump to be the nominee for the Republicans in 2024, odds are you don't hate Ron DeSantis. You're not rooting for Trump because you hate DeSantis. A lot of you probably really like DeSantis. Maybe you think he should wait and run next time in 2028. And I would wager that a lot of you absolutely don't hate DeSantis because he was bad in pushing back against Fauci and creating what he calls a citadel of freedom in the state of Florida during the pandemic. Like, that's not what Republicans might be angry at Ron DeSantis about. And yet that's the attempted attack line here from Donald Trump 
and some of his ardent followers. And by the way, it's all one direction so far. All All the attacks are Trump on DeSantis. DeSantis is not responding at all. He's governing. I saw there was a piece at CNN.com, one of these raging leftists that they have, saying, oh, that's because DeSantis is afraid. He's a coward. He's terrified of Trump just trying to goad DeSantis into some sort of battle. I mean, it's really pretty obvious why CNN wants to stoke that fire. But right now, it's just all flowing from Don to Ron, and Ron is not responding. Not yet. Now, I tweeted, this is the most interesting thing. And I know that I took half an hour to get here, but I wanted to set the table and set the stage and really take some time. That's one of the great luxuries of radio. We get to take our time and make real substantive arguments. I hope that's something you appreciate about this show, even if you don't necessarily agree with the argument, which you don't have to all the time. That's fine. It's a free country. But I tweeted yesterday because I saw Trump had put out on Truth Social about how DeSantis was one of the worst Republican governors, really bad on shutdowns, shut down all the beaches. Just not true. And so in my tweet, I screen grabbed Trump's truth, right, just a, a clip of Trump putting that out on his social media. Then I had a headline of DeSantis 2020 refusing to shut down the beaches in Florida statewide. And then the headline of Trump ripping Brian Kemp for partially opening the economy in Georgia a month later. Echoing Fauci, right? Trump and Fauci were absolutely on the same page for that one. So I just suggested maybe this is not the smartest or most effective way to come after Ron DeSantis if you're Donald Trump, given the side-by-side comparison and given the well-earned reputation DeSantis has built for himself on this issue. Not by tricking people or lying to them, but by delivering, delivering the goods and the outcomes that has turned Florida not only wildly successful, but very red, appealing not only to the Republican base, but to a bunch of independents, flipping blue counties, Hispanics going for DeSantis straight up. He won them outright. Like, if anything, maybe try to avoid this debate with DeSantis. But Trump's been leaning into it. So I got a bunch of responses to that tweet. Quite a few from DeSantis supporters, a number from Trump supporters saying, well, actually, look at this headline and trying to sort of cobble together something of an argument. And then I saw this response to my tweet. From someone whose name I didn't recognize. And the person wrote, here's the actual reality about Florida beaches from March of 2020. And it's one of these cherry-picked local beach closure stories that he shared. And the person who was sort of purporting to fact-check me, I think distracting from the actual leadership that DeSantis showed on the issue, he was right on COVID and the science, especially as it pertained to beaches early on. And they're trying to find the exceptions to the rule to prove that, I guess, DeSantis is like – As Charlie Chris tried to say, Mr. Shutdown, Governor Shutdown, I think a very lame, implausible attack that's just rebutted by very recent memory. This person's name was Amar Musa. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not attempting to to mispronounce the name. 
someone called Amar Musa was fact-checking me, basically, by siding with Trump, amplifying the Trump argument that DeSantis really was shutting down beaches and shutting things down. Like, trying to promulgate this notion that DeSantis, of all people, was actually, truly the lockdown guy. I mean, it's, it's risible, it's laughable on its face, but this person was trying it. I assumed that Amar Musa was just a hardcore Trump fan, and I understand they're trying to figure out, you know, what's the angle to come after DeSantis? And if DeSantis runs, how do they beat him? What arguments will sort of bleed his support and solidify things for Trump? Maybe they're test driving some arguments. This has to be a big Trump fan. Then I clicked on Amar Musa's Twitter page. And would you like to know what Amar Musa does for a living? He is the National Rapid Response Director for the Democratic National Committee. Please take a moment with me and think about this. Whatever you think of Trump, whatever you think of DeSantis, whatever you think of 2024, here we have the National Rapid Response Chief of the Democratic Party rushing to validate Donald Trump's factually wrong attacks against Ron DeSantis. I've noticed recently that the grifters, the pathetic grifters at the Lincoln Project, are openly rooting for Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis because their grift requires Trump to raise money to enrich themselves. And they're Democrats and they want to win and they evidently want to run against Donald Trump. You've got CNN trying to egg DeSantis into responding and, like, you know, spur him into responding to Trump. And here's the rapid response director of the National Democratic Committee racing to amplify and validate Trump's attack against Ron DeSantis. Trump's, in my view, completely wrongheaded attack, but he's getting support. His ally in this attack on DeSantis is now the Democratic National Committee. Golly gee, America, I wonder why that might be the case. It takes about two seconds of critical thinking to at least reach a plausible conclusion that the Democratic Party would like to help Donald Trump win the nomination. And the only reason they would do that given how much they loathe him, is because they would like to run against him in a general election, as opposed to, I don't know, maybe someone else who shall remain nameless. But they're making very clear who they're scared of. If they're teaming up with the Trump campaign on bogus oppo hits against Ron DeSantis, I think that tells us something. Call me crazy. 2022 elections were underwhelming, disappointing for the Republicans in a lot of ways. Not in Florida, not in Ohio, not in Iowa, some other places. Florida was an actual red wave state, a red wave that petered out or didn't exist at all a lot of other places. Right, That's a significant thing to remember, a significant factor to recall. One of the national lessons 
for Republicans, in my mind, is when Democrats meddled, which they did. Remember this? We talked about it a lot before the election. They were spending tens of millions of dollars, the Democrats were, in Republican primaries to try to handpick and help the types of Republicans that they wanted to run against. I thought this was very cynical. I thought this was extremely irresponsible. They were out there telling us these people are dangers to our very republic, but let's spend tens of billions of dollars boosting them. Why? Because they had made the calculation that those types of Republicans would be easier to beat in general elections, so they wanted to help those people get to the general election, spending a bunch of money to manipulate Republican voters in order to then have weaker or more extreme candidates that they felt like they could beat. They did it in governor's races, Senate races, House races across the country. And unfortunately, it worked. Every single Republican who was nominated after Democrats meddled on their behalf, every single one of them lost in November. You might think that's unfair. You might think that's unseemly. You might think that's dirty pool. I agree. It's also reality. Every single one that the Democrats boosted with their money and their efforts to get them into a general in order to beat them, they all lost. The Democrats' strategy there was successful. So to me, the takeaway from that for Republican voters and conservatives is when the Democrats tell you what they want and make it quite clear who they want to run against, maybe, just maybe, Republican voters should not give them exactly what they're asking for. It seems like a pretty good lesson to me. Now, there are folks who are going to support Trump or DeSantis or anyone else. We'll see who runs for president in 2024. Just because there are people lobbying, lobbying on behalf of someone else, like there's, there's a lot of intricate and complex factors at play in dynamics. I get that. This is not like an open and shut case necessarily, but at least as far as this episode is concerned, I find it extremely revealing and telling. The rapid response director at the Democratic National Committee is out there on the ramparts, on the wall, so to speak, for Donald Trump, echoing and amplifying a fact challenge and I would say fundamentally dishonest attack against Ron DeSantis. And I think even if you're a Trump fan and you're determined to vote for Trump in an upcoming primary down the line, you know, a year from now or whatever, I would hope that it would at least give you some pause that the Democrats clearly are looking at Ron DeSantis and saying, we need to help take this guy out. And if that means siding with Trump, we're going to do it. That, to me, feels very much like an early object lesson that conservatives need to pay attention to. And I also think if you're someone who's been a Trump voter once or twice, even really like him, maybe you're over Trump, but you're not never Trump, and you're looking around for someone else, it's a good rule of thumb that the opposition will sometimes find ways to indicate who scares them, who actually scares them, not all their hyperbolic rhetoric about threats to democracy and all the stuff that they do, who actually scares them. I think this is a little bit of a tipping of the hand 
in this circumstance. You might disagree. That's how I interpret it. It's not subtle either, at least as far as I'm concerned. And maybe even if you're not sure who you might support for president, you're open to different things. Maybe you're open to Trump. You're open to an alternative. We should be thinking about and paying attention who the Democrats are once again meddling on behalf of and who they are meddling against. Given the experience of 2022. And as conservatives, just on principle and in terms of outcomes over the last couple of years with the covid pandemic, I think it is a bad look for a conservative to be attacking another conservative over his extremely successful leadership on this front, which was sorely lacking a lot of places, but not in the state of Florida. Obviously so. Demonstrably so. Find ways to come after Ron DeSantis if you want to and beat him in a primary if he gets in. That's how the game works. That's how this game gets played. Echoing Democratic cynical attacks where the Democrats have not a leg to stand on. They were suing DeSantis and attacking him as like a child murderer the whole time. And now they're linking arms with Trump saying, oh, yeah, he was way too much of a restrictionist. He was way too big of a shutdown guy. Come on. I think it's quite clear what's happening here. And I want to lay all of that out before you and let you draw some of your own conclusions or at least put it in the memory bank. File it away. It's a data point that should not be ignored. The Guy Benson Show back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. This was interesting. Elizabeth Warren interviewed on GBH News about President Biden running again for re-election in 2024. She gives her first answer and then listen to the follow-up and her dodge. Cut 15. Yes, he should run again. Yeah. And he is running again because he has gotten a tremendous amount done. Could Kamala Harris be the his choice of second time around? You know, I, I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team. But they need... They have to be a team, and my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. I think they are. She really wants to defer on that question about Kamala Harris? Ouch. Maybe Kamala Harris can hop in an electric school bus and draw a Venn diagram about how that answer makes her feel. Probably not too good. Cue the cackle. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour is here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. Fox News alert as we get rolling here in this hour. The Dow tumbling 260 points today, though in the red, closing out at 33,717. With me now, Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel White House correspondent. And Peter, always good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Guy. So it's been interesting. Yesterday on Face the Nation on CBS, we saw both the chairman and vice chairman 
of the Senate Intelligence Committee saying that they really want to start to actually get briefed and clued in on some elements of this document scandal that the Biden White House has been dealing with. Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, Marco Rubio, a Republican from Florida, both saying the Senate Intelligence Committee wants to assess if anything was put at risk in terms of national secrets. Rubio calling the ongoing stonewalling of documents untenable. And I guess the DOJ now says that they're working to share some of this info on the document scandal with Congress. What's the latest on this conflagration that's been a real problem for the White House politically now for weeks? Well, the latest is that somebody uh, who's familiar with this investigation, so, you know, limited limited number of suspects there, somebody told NBC News over the weekend that it's not just documents with classified markings, but it is also – possibly uh, notebooks where the president would go into a classified setting, somebody would tell him some secret, and he was writing it down. And the way the rules work, uh, you're not even supposed to have, like, a pen and paper in there. Um, that That is the same as a classified document. And so it's it's interesting to see something like that come out after two, three weeks of having people explain what a folder with classified material looks like. Um, And if that is the explanation, um, you know, it, it might make sense, but that doesn't make it legal. Correct. And it also doesn't get rid of the fact that we know at least some of the material is like marked classified, top secret stuff, not written down in a notebook. So, I mean, it's like that might explain some of the documents out of a whole trove, several troves now, that have been found. Something else that was interesting, Peter, was this – I don't know if it was a directive, if you can call it that, but the request from the National Archives for all living presidents and vice presidents to review their personal items, going through their house and making sure that they don't have this stuff, considering that there's now been this whole series of embarrassments at the very least – I know you've been trying to ascertain if there's any updates on that. I just wonder, will there be more prominent characters pulled into this particular scandal? And those who are already involved in it, could we still see more documents found at some point here? It's entirely possible, but I just don't – I don't know that the National Archives has, like, the probable cause that they would need to go – ring the bell in Chappaqua or in Crawford, Texas, and say, let us in. We want to look through all your personal stuff. Um, I was in the, I was in contact with George W. Bush's office last week, and they basically said, you know, they got, they got this letter from the archives uh, asking them to do an assessment of all their stuff, and they said they're confident they don't have anything like that. They turned everything over in 2009. And so... Uh, I don't know how much formers are going to be looking, um, and I don't know that there's enough evidence for the archives to go, like, force them to look or let somebody in to look. And so I don't know if anything's going to happen with that. The day after tomorrow, Wednesday, you can circle the date on the calendar, the president and the now Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, will have some sort of conversation, some sort of meeting on the debt limit, some initial talks. I mean, I don't think anyone expects 
meaningful movement or a resolution, considering that the actual realistic deadline is months from now. It's not really how Washington works, resolving things ahead of time in sort of like a a competent way. I think we'll probably punt this thing as far as possible. But it's still noteworthy that these conversations are going to happen. The Republicans are saying we're going to have demands and we need to be taken seriously. We control the purse strings. The White House so far has been saying we are not going to negotiate on this issue at all. It's inappropriate. It shouldn't happen. Uh, Of course, Joe Biden, as vice president, led the negotiations in 2011 on exactly this sort of thing. So I just wonder how the White House is trying to frame their no negotiations stance, which at least in my mind seems probably like it will expire at some point. Well, they claim that if there's any negotiation, really, uh, Republicans are going to take Medicare and Social Security and they're going to cut the entitlement for people of age. They're going to take it away or they're going to reduce it. And we know that there are not Republicans talking exactly like that, but they do want to reform entitlements. They want, you know, somehow the the spending has to be reduced so that those entitlements are still there for people that are born this year. Uh, and so I, I don't know what they're going to get out of this meeting. Um, McCarthy and Biden have met before. It's the first time they've met as speaker and president, but they've met before. They know each other. And, you know, last time that they went, uh, McCarthy invited Biden to the border. Uh, they didn't go together. <laughs> and so I, I don't know that there's going to be anything that they go together with on this. I would point out to what you just said, it's not even a question if these big entitlement spending programs will be available to kids being born today. It's like, will they be around when people our age even retire, Peter? I mean, that's the math, or even sooner, I think, is the problem. Whether you're going to resolve that in a debt ceiling standoff, I am extremely skeptical. But when Biden was leading the negotiations as vice president back in 2011, so you know, just over a decade ago, the debt limit, the number that we were looking at was right around $14 trillion. That was the cap. That has more than doubled since then blowing past 31 trillion so it has really gotten exponentially worse that's part of the i would say the urgency and at some point dealing with our long-term obligations whether this is the fulcrum point to do it uh you know i don't know that's going to be part of the conversation now we know that the president today peter was in baltimore kicking off a project an infrastructure project that i guess is going to take like a decade there are also discussions about presidential travel that he might be heading over to europe to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Is there any guidance you're getting on that? Does it seem like the president wants to be over there symbolically for that anniversary? Well, we don't have explicit guidance yet, even off the record, but um, you get a sense that they are thinking about it because they don't say, no, he's not going to go. They say, uh, we don't have any travel updates to give you right now. And so... I'm sure he would like to go. He says that uh, every time he gets the European leaders together, he, uh, you know, they all ask him how America's doing, and he says America's back. Uh, he says that after all these meetings. And so I'm sure he wants to go. That's that's his crowd, um, Western European leaders. But uh, <laughs> I'm just not sh- I'm, I'm not sure uh, where it fits into his schedule. Yeah, his approval rating at home is in the low 40 percent range. 
Uh, maybe among Western European leaders, it's higher than that. Last question, Peter. Big changes coming at the White House in the chief of staff position. Ron Klain has been a fixture for these last two years. Uh, you know, a big player behind the scenes, a very active Twitter feed, of course. Uh, he is going to be stepping aside. What is sort of the sense that you get about how he's viewed inside the administration? And what can you tell us about his incoming replacement, who will be stepping in soon? You know, Ron Clayton on his way out, uh, the press secretary said that she's a claniac and that that's like a thing within the West Wing. Uh, around the time of him leaving, that's the first time that I have heard the phrase claniacs. Uh, <laughs> but it's obvious that they all like him a lot. And if you're a, a Biden Democrat, he he delivered a lot. Uh, and so I think inside the West Wing, but also outside with um, – just Democrats in D.C. who know that he could be counted on, whether you're a progressive or a moderate, to at least pick up the phone or reply to an email. Um, I think they'll miss him, and they're just waiting to see uh, how things go with Jeff Zients. Yep, and Jeff Zients was a COVID czar for a while, and uh, it's big shoes to fill. A lot of retweets if you want to keep up with uh, his predecessor, Ron Klain. I guess we'll see what his social media habits are like once he takes the helm. Peter Ducey, our colleague at the White House, here at Fox News, one of our correspondents there. Peter, always appreciate your time, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. You bet. That's Peter Ducey on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, i got a couple thorny issues to get to. The situation, the horrible killing in Memphis late last week and the reaction to it, plus strife in the Middle East, Israel. I have a lot to say on all of those topics coming up. Don't go anywhere. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. So I have to tell you something of a confession here. I have not been able to bring myself to watch the footage of the beating death of Tyree Nichols, 29-year-old black man in Memphis, Tennessee. Huge story. Beaten to death by five police officers when a traffic stop situation just spun totally out of control. From what I have read and seen, the officers rolled up completely out of control to begin with. And as they assaulted this man viciously, he apparently was calling out for his mother before he died. Just horrible. It was all on tape. And the videos dropped the very end of last week, sparking widespread disgust and condemnation, a lot of protests and some violence. I'm not avoiding it because I don't want to look at the hard truth. I'm avoiding it because the descriptions are terrible enough. And I've seen basically nobody defending these officers. Sometimes things are just clear, and there's no defending something. Sometimes you'll say, oh, wait, the cops are always right, or there must be something here. If you just obey the cops, like people will justify a lot of things. I've seen very, very little of that. 
with the calumnies coming in from all directions across the spectrum. The five involved officers have been fired. They will be prosecuted, I'm sure. There was another cop overheard basically supporting the violence. That person has been suspended, at least for now. When people with badges abuse their authority and do things like this, they disgrace themselves. They make it harder for the overwhelmingly good majority of law enforcement officers to do their job effectively. And they breed distrust in communities, and they need to be held accountable. They need to be punished, especially when it's cut and dried. Now, I will say that there seems to be a template for when bad things like this happen. Regardless of the details or the facts, certain people come out of the woodwork to engage in violence, which is instantly discrediting. If you're going to protest violence with violence, you're done in my mind. You are a huge part of the problem. You are an element of the dysfunction and the injustice that you at least claim to oppose. You also have people who try to instantly make everything racial, right? We talked about this just recently, the mass shootings out in California. Like it was reported initially, Asian Americans were targeted. People said, see, this is white supremacy. This is why we need to treat white supremacy like a clear and present danger, and we have to ban assault rifles. And it turned out that the perpetrator was of Asian descent and used a handgun. But they like straight away bolted for their talking points before the facts were even clear. In this case, the Tyree Nichols case, the victim was black. All five officers are black. And yet it's being treated as a white supremacy racist problem. Like that these black cops have become institutionalized into the systemically racist system So the black people are actually racist against black people because they're police, because the system is completely racist. And I think that's where you lose a lot of people as well. Can't we just agree that this was indefensible and horrific and inexcusable and needs to be punished instead of straining to jam this and shoehorn this into a certain racial framework? which is unfortunately something of a cottage industry for some people, which I think is cynical and very unfortunate. I'm not saying that we should never have tough conversations about race and that it's just irresponsible to ever bring up race or to have a thoughtful conversation even within this context. But some of the, you know, the headlines and the tweets about how this actually really, if you think about it, is white supremacy based on the systematically white system where The attackers and the victim are all black. It's just, I think, intuitively nonsense to a lot of people. And you lose even more people, at least from the big ideological push that you sometimes get as a result of tragedies like this. And then, of course, the defund and abolish the police crowd who were never too far from their smartphones or the cameras They come out of the woodwork immediately, including, I saw, I think, one of the co-authors of that controversial Associated Press African-American Studies AP curriculum. 
that in its initial form had been rejected by Florida, prompting allegations of racism. One of the co-creators of that curriculum was out there tweeting police abolition stuff. I wonder if that person has a radical agenda. Gee, sometimes atrocities and grave injustices speak for themselves and unify all of us. I feel like this is one of those instances. And if we want to hold together as a society, I think it's incumbent on those of us who agree on this to forcefully reject violence done in the name of justice, to reject the racialism mindset that I think is so often poisonous and toxic and deliberately divisive, and as always, absolutely slam the door shut on defunding or abolishing the police, which would clearly solve nothing and in fact would make society so much worse and so much more dangerous. It is totally destructive and unserious and should be treated as such. feel horrible for the family of Tyree Nichols, and I hope actual justice, not politicized justice, is done. We turn to another difficult topic when we come back, although one about which I have absolute moral clarity. We'll get to that on The Guy Benson Show after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Our website podcast is always free. So on Friday night, a Palestinian terrorist shot and killed seven people at a synagogue in Jerusalem at the start of the Jewish Sabbath. Obviously an act of terrorism. Many others were wounded. The murdered victims were as old as 68, as young as 14. The next day, Saturday over the weekend, a 13-year-old Palestinian terrorist, a child, shot and wounded two people in a follow-up attack in East Jerusalem, just outside a Jewish settlement. After the deadly shooting in the West Bank and in Gaza, Palestinians took to the streets to celebrate. And there are lots of images and video if you want to go and watch. It's actually quite sickening. Because this is sick. You see people smiling, cheering, whooping. They shot off fireworks. They were handing out candy. They were so happy that Jews had been murdered. I understand that there are people on different sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I understand that there are people who disagree with me on these issues who are not bigots and anti-Semites. However, this is one of the issues where I really, really struggle to see the other side. To me, it is pretty darn close to black and white. Maybe not fully black and white. There are some subtleties. There are some nuances. Neither side is fully blameless. But on one side of this conflict, you have Israel, the tiny, only Jewish state on the planet, whose leaders and population overwhelmingly just want to live in peace. And on the other hand, you have Palestinians and many of their leaders and a lot of the terrorist organizations that are allowed to operate 
in the Palestinian territories. In fact, a terrorist organization runs one of the territories, Gaza. They celebrate death. As evidenced by the images over the weekend, that's not a caricature by me. That is not an unfair characterization. They celebrate the murder of Jews. Born out of a deep, indoctrinated hatred that they breed and inculcate into their children from the earliest ages, which is how you get the absolutely appalling reality of a middle schooler going to commit terrorist attacks. They don't want peace. They want Jews dead and Israel wiped off the face of the earth into the sea. And they want that country to be completely taken over by themselves. That's what they want. So you have people in the international community, often at the United Nations, which devotes an inordinate, wildly disproportionate amount of time and effort to condemning Israel, this little teeny tiny little place. These people demand regularly that the Israelis make all kinds of concessions to the Palestinians who really don't have a unified leadership that can even, quite frankly, negotiate with credibility. And that reward, coddle, harbor, or collaborate with terrorist organizations. Israel has made these concessions through the years, through the decades, many times. And almost every single concession that Israeli leaders make in the pursuit of peace ends up blowing up in their faces. Because you can't have peace if only one side really wants it. And yet they are blamed over and over again by these people some of whom are absolutely anti-Semites, and there's just no question, there's no getting around it. Some of them are just anti-quote-unquote imperialist or anti-Western leftists and Marxists, where they see the Israelis and they say, okay, that's a, a successful country. They look and say, all right, whose skin on average is lighter? And they decide, well, we're going to take one side based on those factors. I, I mean, that sounds really crazy and twisted to talk about it that way, but I think that's the reality. And these people frame the pluralistic society that gives rights to minorities, in many ways does all the things that the left says that they love, universal health care, gay rights, they have legalized abortion, I believe at least early in the pregnancy. They are extremely progressive, quote-unquote, compared to the neighborhood, by far, and yet many of the progressives hate them. Now, what some of the anti-Israel fanatics would say is, oh, what Guy isn't telling you is that the massacre at this synagogue was a tit-for-tat reprisal for something that the Israelis did just a few days earlier. It is true that in Jenin, which is a city in the West Bank, Nine people were killed in a gun battle with the Israeli military. The Israeli military went in to apprehend high-ranking members of the terrorist group Islamic Jihad, who were involved in planning and executing multiple attacks against Israeli soldiers and civilians. This according to the New York Times. So the Israeli military identified terrorists responsible for attacks on their people, plotting more ones, went in to apprehend these terrorists, and they were then caught up in a fight, right? There was a gun battle. 
The Israeli soldiers responded with live rounds because they were being attacked. They were being shot at. And 20 people were wounded. Nine people were killed. The Palestinians accused the Israelis of storming a hospital and filling the pediatric ward with tear gas. Right. This is they are just propagandists. First of all, these terrorists often operate out of schools and hospitals and mosques. Using innocent people as human shields. They have no compunction whatsoever about putting innocent Palestinian lives at risk if they can score a PR coup against the Israelis. In fact, in a lot of the rocketing attacks from Gaza into Israel, a lot of the rockets are misfired and land in Gaza, killing Palestinians. They kill their own people. Blame the Israelis for it. When you see the people who were killed by the Israelis during this skirmish in Jenin, in the propaganda photographs, it's just these smiling young men. Look at these innocent victims murdered by the ugly, powerful Israeli government. Well, then you see a couple other photos of them being circulated, of them in fatigues, and terrorist garb holding guns because they were members of a terrorist organization attacking the Israeli soldiers who were coming in to make arrests. These were terrorists. And yet it sort of gets whitewashed deliberately in the Palestinian propaganda, and far too often the news media runs with it, especially abroad. The news media abroad is really intensely anti-Israel. So they just lap up the lies and the propaganda from the Palestinians. In fact, even the New York Times over the weekend had an awful headline, Palestinian man fatally shot as violence continues in Israel. Like that really doesn't offer context about what happened. You just know that a Palestinian man was fatally shot. The subheadline was tensions and violence have gripped the Israeli-occupied West Bank and Jerusalem for days after an Israeli military raid on Thursday killed, and they have a death toll of 10 in this story. And there are Israel supporters, for example, like Avi Meyer, who is an IDF spokesperson, saying that what you wouldn't know from the headline is the quote-unquote Palestinian man in question had a gun and was attempting to carry out an attack against an Israeli community. And the Jenin raid is mentioned in a vacuum, not noting that most of the confirmed dead were confirmed terrorists. And no mention at all in the headline or in the subheadline of the massacre of civilians at the Jerusalem synagogue. That's another just huge, glaring difference, right, in the so-called tit-for-tat. Oh, we must have de-escalation. From both sides, the both sidesism here drives me crazy. The Israeli military going into apprehend and imprison, if they can get them, terrorists who have killed Israelis and want to kill more of them. They've identified these terrorists. They've located them. They're going in to arrest them. They then get fired upon. They're under siege by terrorists. They fight back. Some of the terrorists get killed. And that is framed as Israeli aggression and a massacre, quote unquote, by the Israelis. And then it's like, okay, well, then the next day or two days later, seven completely innocent civilians are deliberately shot on their way to worship. 
like, well, look at all this escalation. One side defends themselves while arresting terrorists, killing some terrorists in the self-defense. The other side intentionally murders innocent people, including children and senior citizens, and then they celebrate in the streets. These things are not like one another. These things are not equivalent. I saw that Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is one of the most clumsy bigots in Congress, absolutely, in my mind, an anti-Semite. You look at her words, you look at her actions, you look at her associations. She's part of the silence is violence crowd. Like 80% of all of her foreign policy tweets are attacks against Israel. And she has had absolutely nothing to say about the murder of seven innocent Israelis except some vague, oh, it's such a shame that people on both sides are losing loved ones, just mealy-mouthed nothing. But she has been out on Twitter beating the drum about the supposed massacre in the West Bank by the Israelis. She said, we honor the victims of the Jenin massacre. Well, guess what? The victims overwhelmingly were confirmed terrorists. That's who you're honoring, Congresswoman Tlaib. Like, it's kind of hard to look at that fact pattern and the way that she reacts to these situations and the people that she surrounds herself with, the things that she says, the slanders and libels that she repeats, and not sort of wonder if there's a terrorism sympathy element to her worldview. I know that's harsh. It's also true. I'm not just saying it out of nowhere. There's a long digital paper trail of her putting stuff out and saying things on camera, inviting outright terrorism supporters and sponsors to meet with her. And then we get all these sort of all lives matter style condemnations of the violence on both sides. Absolutely morally bankrupt. Right. Leftists angrily reject all lives matter in the context of black lives matter, which is something, frankly, I've been educated on. And I understand why people get upset by all lives matter within that context. And I always try to separate out black lives matter, the sentiment versus the organization. But then those same people who are so offended by the all lives matter, what they would say is a cop out. They do the exact same thing when it comes to the Israelis and the Palestinians. When Ilhan Omar has been like belching out whatever her latest anti-Semitism is. Remember a few years back, they tried to condemn her in the House. The Democrats had to water down their own anti-anti-Semitism resolution because they wanted to just fill in all the bigotries. All the bigotries matter. They all lives matter this stuff routinely. In fact, just late last week, it was literally Holocaust Remembrance Day. And the Courier-Journal, which is a liberal newspaper in Kentucky, published an op-ed On Holocaust Remembrance Day, co-authored by five women, all left-wing community activists and Democratic politicians, and their actual thesis of their piece on Holocaust Remembrance Day was Holocaust Remembrance Day is a time to remember more than one atrocity. They wrote, this is an actual quote from their piece at the beginning of their piece, Jews do not have a monopoly on persecution and atrocities. And they listed a whole bunch of other groups that have been marginalized or targeted through history. 
black people, Asians, Hispanics, Muslims, LGBTQ+, transgender, Native Americans, the list is not all-inclusive, they wrote. They actually all lives mattered the Holocaust on Holocaust Remembrance Day. This is a growing strain of leftism that cannot focus on calling out anti-Semitism and rooting it out because there's an awful lot of allies, quote unquote, that are kind of in that camp. And so they're like, let's just not condemn it unless we're condemning everything else. Let's not talk about the Holocaust unless we're talking about other atrocities as well. Relatedly, there's a soundbite I want to play for you coming up of Ilhan Omar over the weekend. We'll get to that right after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we were just talking about one U.S. congresswoman. Now, Rashida Tlaib's buddy in the squad, Ilhan Omar, she's getting booted off the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I think for the first time that I've maybe ever seen, she was pressed on some of her problematic things that she said. On CNN, Dana Bash was asking her about it. Cut 21, Ilhan Omar lies in justifying what she has said in the past. Listen. When you apologized uh, for the all about the Benjamins <clears throat> comment, you said anti-Semitism is real. And I'm grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. What did you learn? A lot. I certainly did not or was not aware that the word hypnotize uh, was a trope. Um, I wasn't aware um, of, of the fact that there are tropes about Jews and money. Um, that has been a very enlightening uh, part of, of this journey. Ah, this grown woman had no idea that there were tropes about Jews and money. She just happened to fall on that and land on that a few times. By accident, sure. The problem is there are members of the Jewish community from where she lives in Minneapolis who said that they personally met with her when she was doing some of this sort of stuff, educating her on why this stuff was offensive, and then she kept doing it. So the ignorance excuse becomes a lie. She's a little bit more skilled at the lying than Rashida Tlaib, but not much. Last but not least over the weekend... The Israeli military appears to have successfully struck a series of facilities connected to Iran's missile program inside Iran. The Israelis say they did some serious damage. Some of the evidence, like video footage of the attacks, buildings on fire, an underground attack that basically triggered what looked like an earthquake on the Richter scale, backs up the Israeli claims. The Iranians say that it was just like a a mere flesh wound, like barely effective. It was mostly thwarted. There was just some superficial damage. Uh, They might be lying if, in fact, the Israelis have disrupted in a serious way the drone and missile program of Iran. That is not only great news for Israel, great news for America, great news for the innocent people who are targeted with Iranian weapons through various proxies, including a lot of these terrorist organizations. Also, the people of Ukraine, because Iran has been providing weapons to the Russians as part of that modern-day axis of evil. I'm looking forward to see how our progressive friends find a way to criticize that from the Israelis, because they always do. Coincidentally, the Israelis can do no right. They just happen to be the one small little Jewish country in the world, a democracy. Never good enough for some of these people who lie endlessly. Not here, which is why I wanted to devote a significant portion of time to setting the record straight on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Final hour coming up. Carol Markowitz joins us when we return. (laughs) 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday from Washington, D.C. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, on both Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, cold, refreshing, delicious year-round, growing in popularity for good reason. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Check them out. Find out where they're sold near you as they expand. Order online. TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only and always drink responsibly. We now welcome back to the show Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com, at Carol with a K on Twitter. And Carol, it's great to have you back. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. So I saw some very exciting news today from you and another mutual friend of ours. You guys have co-authored a book together. The launch date is March 7th, which is a terrific launch date. In fact, it's my launch date. I was born on March 7th. So I cannot wait to buy myself a birthday present. Your book, along with Bethany Mandel, tell us about it. It's titled, um, uh, sorry, Stolen Youth. (laughs) Got confused there for a second. Stolen Youth, coming out March 7th. It's on how wokeness destroys childhood and how all the different ways that the woke aim their indoctrination at our children. Um, it's not just schools. It's the pediatrician's office. It's the library. It's the publishing companies. It's the medical uh, accreditation com- you know, affiliates and everybody else involved in targeting our kids. So March 7th, it's a Daily Wire books publication. It's called Stolen Youth. It's Carol Markowitz, Bethany Mandel. It's going to be very exciting How long has this project been in the works, in the making? Because I feel like, obviously, over the course of the pandemic, some of these issues came to the forefront, and it feels like it's a very active battle right now. When did you guys get going in terms of these conversations and then really putting the pedal to the metal and making this into a book? Yeah, so we started writing it about a year to a year and a half ago. Um, But obviously, it's all still happening. But we do have a chapter in the book on COVID specifically, even though that's sort of, you know, allegedly in the rear view, uh, because we think that a lot of the issues that were raised during COVID are part of this woke problem. And the the fact that you weren't allowed to say certain things and like, you know, basic things, not even anything controversial. You weren't allowed to say kids should go to school because then you would be accused of wanting teachers to die. So we addressed the COVID and what happened with the COVID measures um, and how much that influenced all the wokeness around, you know, that's happening right now. Relatedly, Carol, I do want to ask you about a subject. I sort of opened the show today at great length on some of these attacks that are coming against your new governor, Ron DeSantis. You were from New York, famously moved to Florida, and you've gotten close with DeSantis. You moved there for a reason. And I guess people are wondering if DeSantis is going to run for president. The rumor would be he would wait until after May in the legislative session to announce if he's decided to go that direction. Donald Trump, who is running again for president, 
has again started back up with his attacks against DeSantis. Over the weekend, he was in New Hampshire. He was in South Carolina. He's calling DeSantis Ron DeSanctimonious. He put out a post saying that DeSantis was very bad on COVID, shut Florida down, shut down the beaches. Uh, This is the line of attack that he's going with. And I've seen and I've pointed out on social media, like the DNC is literally amplifying those attacks against DeSantis. I see the Lincoln Project is going in for Trump against DeSantis. And I just wonder what you make of those dynamics and sort of those strange bedfellows, first of all. And secondly, like, do you think that dog will hunt? Do you think that people, Republican voters especially, can be convinced that actually everything that we've seen with our own eyes over the last two years is wrong, and DeSantis was very bad on COVID. Yeah, so it's on CNN. You forgot to mention CNN also published an article on how DeSantis is not responding to Trump attacks and how maybe that makes him weak um, because they're dying for the fight. Lincoln Project, DNC, CNN, you know, they're all the same to me. Um, they're dying for this fight. They're, they want to see it happen. They want to see DeSantis come out swinging. They want to see uh, Trump call him names. I think DeSantis is a really lame one. I think he should really workshop that, workshop that a little bit. Um, But also the idea that Trump keeps pushing that he uh, made Ron DeSantis, that he is responsible for Ron DeSantis, but he also calls him a globalist. Uh, This Twitter uh, user Max Norda made this comment today. President Trump demands that you give President Trump full credit for installing a compromised globalist as governor of Florida. And that's really where we are. Trump thinks he's terrible, but also should get all the credit for him being governor. And it's ridiculous to imagine that people aren't going to know what happened over the last two years. And I have to say, so in stolen youth, I obviously give a lot of credit to Ron DeSantis for reopening Florida. I thank him and the acknowledgments for giving our families somewhere sane to go. But I also say that Donald Trump wanted to open the schools, you know, back when that was an idea that was just not acceptable. And it was summer 2020, and he wanted to open the schools for fall 2020. And as the more Trump wanted to open the schools, the more the left pushed back and made school opening impossible. So I, I, you know, I think Trump can point to some good things during his presidency where he did try to get us back to sanity. Not anywhere near the level of Ron DeSantis, though, because DeSantis acted on it. He did it. While Trump kept people like Fauci and Burks around to keep keep us in masks, keep the schools closed, and keep pushing really politicized health policies. Yep. And, you know, the other point, just to go down the path that you sort of opened up there on Trump making DeSantis or whatever, you know, I did this. It'd be very disloyal for him to run against me because I'm responsible for him. Like, let's just say, and this is a point I've been making, and I would imagine I'll probably make it multiple times in coming months if I had to guess. But let's just, for the sake of argument, grant the point that Ron DeSantis would never have been governor without Donald Trump. I think that's actually probably true. I don't think DeSantis would have won his primary. It would have been a lot harder for him to win that primary against the establishment favorite without the backing of Donald Trump. He leaned into it. Trump leaned into it. DeSantis won the primary, and then he eked out the narrowest of victories over Andrew Gillum. Boy, if that thing had gone a couple tens of thousands of votes the other way, Florida would have been a very different place over the last couple of years. I mean, they really dodged a bullet there. But DeSantis narrowly won by less than half of one percentage point. I think it's fine for Trump to be proud of the fact that he helped make Ron DeSantis governor and was instrumental. I think there's no question about that. There's no getting around it. But Trump has also endorsed a lot of people, some of whom have won, some of whom have lost. 
a lot of them have won, and they've been fine, or they've been sort of underwhelming and haven't done that great of a job. Other people have won and done a very good job. Other people have won and done an exceptional job. And at some point, you can help put someone in a position, but then it's like, okay, great. Now what? Now let's see results. What is this other person going to do with the power that they've been entrusted with? And at a certain point, I would say a lot of voters don't really care anymore who helped someone get to a certain place. It's like, what do you do with that position? And the demanding all this credit and loyalty and stuff as if the performance in office is some sort of afterthought, I think for a lot of voters, like, what have you done for me lately? And DeSantis, in my mind, passes that test with flying colors. That's right. And look, the last election, DeSantis wins by 20 points. So Trump can't continue to claim that it, it was his influence. It, yeah, he, it was his influence, you know, four years ago, but not today. And so, I, again, I, I don't want to say that Trump, you know, like, like you said, is unrelated here. He can say that, yeah, I made DeSantis. I put him on the map. Sure. But, you know, it's been a long time since then. And you're right. It's, it's yep. the, what have you yep. done for me lately? And guess what? Trump, Trump has won Florida twice. He carried Florida in 2016 and 2020. He improved his margin from roughly 1% to roughly 3%. DeSantis has also won Florida twice. He won in 2018 and 2022. His improvement was 0.4% to 19.4% in the state of Florida. Just one more data point. Meanwhile, Carol, going back to your old stomping grounds, New York, I see you've been drawing attention to this story on a totally separate subject. We've mentioned the huge amount of taxpayer money that's flowing to illegal immigrants in New York City. And, you know, we've had this almost cartoonish cascade of Democratic policies with Joe Biden and his terrible border control policies allowing record numbers of illegal immigrants into the country. I mean, not like smashing all these records. And then, you know, Kathy Hochul has these terrible crime policies, no bail. There were a number of illegal immigrants the other day who were arrested having robbed Macy's in New York, one of the locations for like $12,000 worth of merchandise. They were almost immediately put back on the streets without bail because that's the policy there. And they were staying, those particular four migrants uh, who were caught for that crime, they were staying at a Western Hotel, I believe it was, in Midtown, uh, which is like kind of a nice place, and that's on taxpayer dime in New York City, courtesy of Mayor Adams. It was just like all of these Democratic policies combined into one like caricature of left-wing excess. And then there's this sort of follow-on story about a whole group of these illegal immigrants now almost going on strike, refusing to leave a Midtown hotel they've been living at, courtesy of U.S. taxpayers, for quite a period of time now. They're trying to move them to another facility in Brooklyn, and they are demanding that they not leave. And I just wonder what you're hearing about this story, and I think even some of the more bleeding heart types out there might be a little bit irked by the entitlement attitude and the lack of gratitude from people who I guess have gotten so used to cushy hotels that they feel like they can just call the shots as they are in this country illegally and that public officials will, like, bow to their pressure. Right. So I broke the story last night uh, when I got a tip that police had been called in for crowd control at the Watson Hotel on West 57th in Manhattan. And that hotel is pretty nice. It has a pool. It's really, you know, um, a nice midtown hotel. 
And these migrants were going to be moved to the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal, where they have a migrant facility. And so I got this tip that the police were called in for crowd control because people were refusing to leave the hotel. They didn't want to be moved to Brooklyn. And, yeah, it really does stress the, the opinion that people have about these illegal immigrants, because when DeSantis sent them to Martha's Vineyard, the question was, well, did they want to go? Did they want to go? And now they don't want to go to Brooklyn. And is it the same thing or isn't it? Um, And so the thing with Democrats. Are they going to be human trafficked to Brooklyn? I, I think that was the way that some people tried to frame that. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Um, and so the, the problem with the left is even if they accept that this is untenable, that we cannot have this level of illegal immigration into the country at our southern border, they still won't take it into step two of what we should do about that. And I really don't know um, how to get them to understand that there needs to be a step two. You can't just emote and say, oh, yeah, this is really tough for the border towns and this is really tough for the places that are now being bussed in these migrants like New York, like where, um, but they don't. And I think also one of the big failures of the left on this issue specifically is the denialism surrounding basic human incentives. And when you incentivize things over and over again, people are going to adjust to those incentives and then when those incentives get sort of enshrined and part of the system, then the incentives become almost like entitlements. That's how you end up with a situation where you have well over 2 million people encountered at the border in one year. I saw over the last four months, less than four months, Fox News sources are saying that we've had 300,000 illegal immigrant gotaways at the southern border, 300,000 in less than four months, and then they come into the U.S., and the expectation is they're going to be allowed to stay, and that expectation is often reinforced by the federal government, by the Biden administration, and then you have some people who are so entitled that they feel like, okay, now I'm going to go out probably with impunity and commit other crimes, and I still won't get deported. Then I'll go back to my hotel that I'm staying at, and I'm going to refuse to leave because I deserve to be here. I'm entitled to be here. And I think that type of thing actually breeds quite a lot of resentment among quite a lot of Americans who are just feeling like idiots and chumps for being law-abiding. Yeah, they absolutely – it is breeding that. And so I think that the majority of Americans have gotten to where they want to see action. It's just the Democrats in charge are not interested in that. They they are maintaining the status quo where this – a significant number of people come over through the southern border every single day and are hoping it just goes away as an issue. And they they don't want to act on it, and they, they largely ignore the issue. So I, I'd, I'd love to see some change from Democrats. Let this be a political winner for them. Make the changes and let them, you know, ha- have some political success based on it. That's fine with me. But they're not going to do that. They're not going to, they're not going to do any action on the southern border. It's just uh, – it doesn't work with their base. Yep. The equity justice-minded base. That's a pretty twisted thing, but it's where we are. It's the reality. Carol Markowitz, columnist of the New York Post, foxnews.com, soon-to-be author. She and our friend Bethany Mandel have co-written Stolen Youth, available March the 7th, a fabulous day. Can't wait for that to come out, Carol. People can pre-order Stolen Youth right now. How can they do that? Um, It's available on Amazon.com or anywhere else that you buy your books. Stolen Youth by Carol Markowitz and Bethany Mandel coming out 
month after next. Carol, appreciate it. Good luck with the book. We'll have you back when it comes out. Looking forward to that, and we'll talk soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks. With that, we will step aside. We'll come right back. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Here's Butker. For 45 yards. All the way. It's good. It's over. It is over. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won it. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was the voice of Jim Nance on CBS, the AFC game last night, the better game of the two, as the Super Bowl matchup is now set out in Arizona February 12th. It'll be the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles on Fox. I was on a flight from the West Coast back east for most of the games yesterday. I saw the first half of the NFC game, and that thing really unraveled in a hurry for San Francisco at the end of that second quarter. I said, there's no way they're coming back from that, and they didn't. Eagles have just been stomping on people on their way to the Super Bowl. And their fans actually are quite fond of stomping on people as well. Bunch of criminals. So clearly I'll be rooting for Kansas City. I know some Bengals fans and some folks who are rooting against Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and company were unhappy with the officials. Maybe one too many flags. Some people saying it seemed like the NFL really wanted KC to win. Not sure about that. I caught some of the game on my flight, but it was close. And yeah, there were a lot of really significant penalties called by the officials, especially down the stretch there. But ultimately, at home, the Chiefs get it done, and they will face Philadelphia. In the big game two weeks from yesterday, I'll be watching along with basically everyone in America. Because, I mean, it's the Super Bowl. Come on. And my rooting interests have been made quite clear. And I just have to say the Empire State Building lighting up green and white for the Eagles in honor of their conference championship and the tweet from the official account, Fly Eagles Fly, absolutely not. Like, that's a hard, hard no. Embarrassing Empire State Building. Whoever's in charge of that, no. We'll be talking football and Super Bowl in the weeks to come. For now, up on a break, we'll take it. Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on today's Guy Benson Show, we caught up with Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent. He's had a busy few weeks with busy ones to come as well. Here's part of that conversation with Peter Ducey. What's the latest on this conflagration that's been a real problem for the White House politically now for weeks? Well, the latest is that somebody uh, who's familiar with this investigation, so, you know, limited, uh, limited number of suspects there, somebody told NBC News over the weekend that it's not just documents with classified markings, but it is also possibly uh, notebooks where the president would go into a classified setting, somebody would tell him some secret, and he was writing it down. And the way the rules work, uh, you're not even supposed to have, like, a pen and paper in there. Um, that That is the same as a classified document. And so it's it's interesting to see something like that come out after two, three weeks of having people explain what a folder with classified material looks like. Um, And if that is the explanation, um, you know, it, it might make sense, but that doesn't make it legal. 
Correct. And it also doesn't get rid of the fact that we know at least some of the material is like marked classified, top secret stuff, not written down in a notebook. So, I mean, it's like that might explain some of the documents out of a whole trove, several troves now that have been found. Something else that was interesting, Peter, was this. I don't know if it was a directive, if you can call it that, but the request from the National Archives for all living presidents and vice presidents to review their personal items, going through their house and making sure that they don't have this stuff, considering that there's now been this whole series of embarrassments at the very least. I know you've been trying to ascertain if there's any updates on that. I just wonder, will there be more prominent characters pulled into this particular scandal and those who are already involved in it, could we still see more documents found at some point here? It's entirely possible, but I just don't... I don't know that the National Archives has, like, the probable cause that they would need to go ring the bell in Chappaqua or in Crawford, Texas, and say, let us in. We want to look through all your personal stuff. Um, I was in the, I was in contact with George W. Bush's office last week, and they basically said, you know, they got, they got this letter from the archives uh, asking them to do an assessment of all their stuff, and they said they're confident they don't have anything like that. They turned everything over in... 2009. And so I I don't know how much formers are going to be looking. um, And I don't know that there's enough evidence for the archives to go, like, force them to look or let somebody in to look. And so I don't know if anything's going to happen with that. The day after tomorrow, Wednesday, you can circle the date on the calendar, the president and the now Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, will have some sort of conversation, some sort of meeting on the debt limit, some initial talks. I mean, I don't think anyone expects meaningful movement or a resolution, considering that the actual realistic deadline is months from now. It's not really how Washington works, resolving things ahead of time in sort of like a a competent way. I think we'll probably punt this thing as far as possible, but it's still noteworthy that these conversations are going to happen The Republicans are saying we're going to have demands and we need to be taken seriously. We control the purse strings. The White House so far has been saying we are not going to negotiate on this issue at all. It's inappropriate. It shouldn't happen. Uh, Of course, Joe Biden, as vice president, led the negotiations in 2011 on exactly this sort of thing. So I just wonder how the White House is trying to frame their no negotiation stance, which at least in my mind seems probably like it will expire at some point. Well, they claim that if there's any negotiation, really, uh, Republicans are going to take Medicare and Social Security, and they're going to cut the entitlement for people of age. They're going to take it away, or they're going to reduce it. And uh, we know that there are not Republicans talking exactly like that, but they do want to reform entitlements. They want, you know, somehow the the spending has to be reduced so that those entitlements are still there for people that are born this year. Uh, and so I, I don't know what they're going to get out of this meeting. Um, McCarthy and Biden have met before. It's the first time they've met as speaker and president, but they've met before. They know each other. And, you know, last time that they went, uh, McCarthy invited Biden to the border. Uh, they didn't go together. And so I I don't know that there's going to be anything that they go together with on this. I would point out to what you just said, it's not even a question if these big entitlement spending programs will be available to kids being born today. 
it's like, will they be around when people our age even retire, Peter? I mean, that's the math, or even sooner, I think, is the problem. Whether you're going to resolve that in a debt ceiling standoff, I am extremely skeptical. But when Biden was leading the negotiations as vice president back in 2011, so you know, just over a decade ago, the debt limit, the number that we were looking at was right around $14 trillion. That was the cap. That has more than doubled since then, blowing past $31 trillion. So it has really gotten exponentially worse. That's part of the, I would say, the urgency and at some point dealing with our long-term obligations. Whether this is the fulcrum point to do it, uh, you know, I don't know. That's going to be part of the conversation. Now, we know that the president today, Peter, was in Baltimore kicking off a project, an infrastructure project that I guess is going to take like a decade There are also discussions about presidential travel that he might be heading over to Europe to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Is there any guidance you're getting on that? Does it seem like the president wants to be over there symbolically for that anniversary? Well, we don't have explicit guidance yet, even off the record, but um, you get a sense that they are thinking about it because they don't say, no, he's not going to go. They say... Uh, we don't have any travel updates to give you right now. And so I'm sure he would like to go. He says that uh, every time he gets the European leaders together, he, uh, you know, they all ask him how America's doing, and he says America's back. My full interview with Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com, also available on our free podcast, the entire show every day, start to finish on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Producer Christine has a new purchase on the horizon, and it's sort of fitting. I'll explain what I mean by that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Thank you for listening. Over the weekend, I was out on the West Coast, Washington State, right on the Pacific Ocean, speaking to a group called the Roanoke Conference. Had a really fun time out there. I will say from a distance, I was being tortured by members of this radio team sending me all sorts of photos of the pasta that they had cooked. After our conversation last week about pasta, pasta sauce. We talked about how I guess the Washington Post did a taste test of the store-bought jarred brands and Rayo's was the winner. My dad texted me a photo of his jars of Rayo's. So he's on the bandwagon. I've got to get on the same bandwagon. But then Wyatt put together a very intricate look like pasta feast either Friday night or Saturday. Dan and his girlfriend did the same over the weekend. I got all the photos making my mouth just water. I got to get in on this action. Christine, meanwhile, sent us a photo of Kraft macaroni and cheese slathered in ketchup as her authentic Italian food, which was less appealing, frankly, but also pretty on brand for her. Now, Christine, when we were planning today's show, we were on the call. We got to the point of the home stretch. What are we going to talk about? And you were like sheepishly asking, does anyone have any topic, maybe sports? And usually this is a sign that you are avoiding talking about something in your own life. And there was a bit of an awkward silence, and then Dan urged you to explain what your topic is. And I'll just let you 
share with our audience some of the decisions that you've been making about a purchase, about a new routine you're going to try to get into. Just enlighten us. Well, there are two things that happened over the weekend. Uh, we had our my mother over for dinner, and my mom and I were trying to think of something that we could do together, you know, that's just not just the two of us. And uh, my mom had mentioned that she really wanted to start bingo. So starting next week, we'll be going to to our local bingo hall. And mm-hmm. Judgy Joyce and I are going to be having a blast. Are you going to maybe catch the early bird special at the local Olive Garden right before bingo night? I will not be going to the Olive Garden, but I will be driving Judgy Joyce and I. Authentic. In- what? It's a little too authentic <laughs> for you. They do have good breadsticks. Have you ever had the salad there? It's actually not bad. Like, the dressing is really good. I'm sure Olive Garden has quite a lot to commend it, yes. Um, But it sounds like you've got some very exciting nights ahead of you with you and your mother getting together and and playing bingo. Are you going to, like, maybe go down to, like, Florida, do some shuffleboard maybe (laughs) in these – colder weather months as well? Well, the thing is, I do. I'm a pretty competitive person, so I'm actually looking forward to this. You know, I'm thinking well, I'm good. You I, could also, if you're so competitive, you could run, for example. I think I saw this in a sitcom once. You could run to be president of Del Boca Vista, like the local, you know, more elderly age community down there while you're at it as a slightly younger person, a la Kramer. I mean, it sounds like your life is really shaping up in a very exciting way. Bingo, early bird, shuffleboard. We didn't get to the best part. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. How are you going to get to all these places, Christine? I'm going to get to all these. <laughs> can't believe I'm saying this. I'm going to get to all these places in my new Buick. In a brand new car, ladies and gentlemen, and it's, and it's a Buick. <laughs> Look, let me just say. We, I'm sure we have people in this audience who drive Buicks, who might even work for Buick. I am not making fun of Buick. I am making fun of Christine buying a Buick because it's just perfect. Did you have like a brainstorming session? Like, all right, guy always makes fun of me like I'm elderly. What can I buy to make sure that he's right? And like you narrowed it down to Buick and then you pulled the trigger? It's not normal about the fact that I sat at that car dealer and weighed because I really do like the car. But honestly, the thought of you knowing that I had this car (laughs) was a factor in my decision making. Well, I do think in your defense, I think Buick has been running over the last couple of years a whole ad campaign about how like this ain't your grandpappy's Buick no more. It's like, wait, is that a Buick? That's way too hot to be a Buick. That's way too sleek and modern looking to be a Buick. It just it's still it's still a Buick. It's like, oh, did you see here at the bingo hall, Ma just arrived in her Buick. Can you believe it? Here comes Cookie in her new car. In her brand new Buick. And so has this like been done or are you considering this uh i I, we're just waiting on a call that they i mean they're so popular that it's very hard to come by right now but what what happened was uh we lease a car and the lease is up and we usually go for um a gmc and we were because you had and just to remind people you had abandoned a previous scheme to try to buy out the lease but through someone else and you had an intermediary whose name i forget but, like, you had a guy who was Johnny. randomly texting you. 
Tommy? Johnny. Johnny, that's it. It was Johnny. That's right, Johnny. So you, I think, wisely decided to not go that route. Instead, you have gotten a new leased car, and it is a, a Buick. Well, you know what? That's actually not true because I did text and call Johnny from the dealership, and he just, like, stopped responding back to me, which I thought was yeah, quite Yeah, I rude. mean, you ghosted him, and then he ghosted you. Now, just one other question here in terms of some of the features of the Buick. Mm. Does it come with a little holder for your AARP card in the glove compartment? <laughs> I do get that magazine, by the way, and I don't understand. I feel like you sent it to me, like you put me on a list. I did not. I think the government put you on that list. Oh, right. And don't, remember when yeah. they called me about... I do. What's, what is it? You, was it you Medic- thought it was a prank call, but it was <laughs> real. Yeah, it's like you and your Medicare. <laughs> Cookies Medicare. I wonder if you actually, when you buy or lease a Buick, do you Im- immediately get enrolled into like AARP? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you're going to start getting like targeted ads for visiting angels. Oh, so- <laughs> I always start my with mom with jingle. <laughs> visiting it's, angels. It's a wonderful, yeah, a wonderful little jingle. I mean, right? I can do fabulous, it if you want. <laughs> uh, let's let's hold off on that for now. But the more we're having this conversation as this segment unfolds, I've now referenced a Seinfeld episode. I've now referenced the Visiting Angels jingle. I've now referenced the Buick ad campaign trying to make it seem like it's cool. I think the most relevant ad campaign to invoke is the progressive insurance commercials where, like, middle-aged Gen Xers are becoming their parents, and there's the guy trying to help them seem less old. I think this is what we now have on our hands. We need Christine to be in one of these support groups. Listen, wait until you get a ride in this Buick with me. Will you have printed out MapQuest directions? I can't, you think I would be able to, like, read and drive at the same time? I, Bobby, when I'm driving and I have that Waze app on, if Bobby calls, I will scream at him. I'm, I need to concentrate. You cannot call me. I have to. <laughs> I can't do more than two things at once. Driving with me sometimes is a little iffy. Hmm. Well, I mean, I can't say that I'm totally bowled over by this. Bingo night was a surprise. Buick was sort of just icing on the cake. Any other really exciting new things that you're contemplating, like a hip replacement maybe? I have to jump in here. I, I have to back Christine on this one, which is which is rare. I know, I know, I know. Christine, put the gun down. <laughs> Let Dan think for himself. I know. Well, no, she came in originally today, and she's like, I, I got to say something, but we, we can't tell Guy. We just can't tell Guy. And I like how I bring it up in the meeting. <laughs> like, come on, yes, you just have you're to like, say yeah, I think there's something, there's something to be raised. Um, but I think Buicks are actually pretty cool. They've done a lot of cool things with them lately. They had, like, Tiger Woods as a sponsor at one point. And, you know, I just think they look really cool. The name just gives it a bad rap because, like, all of our grandparents at some point had a Buick, basically. But I think they're pretty cool. I don't know. I would ride in it. Well, as the only person here who acts 70, let's ask Wyatt about this. Wyatt, are you in the market for a Buick? No, I'm sorry. I don't – I'm just – I'm not a – I mean, it's – my grandma drove a Buick. Right. So it, it does fit a certain demographic oh, and they are nice cars, but I would be more like – Well, your grandma and Christine have some things in common, right? Does Does Christine remind you at all, grandma? <laughs> Bingo. Christine, are you going to go to a casino next? I feel like that, what you're betting, that might be the next thing. I would totally take that bus to Atlantic City. 
you Why know, do you the- take the bus? You have a Buick. <laughs> I don't want to waste the miles on that, bu- on that baby. <laughs> unless you start getting to like that certain point where it's really not so wise for Christine to be driving anymore, you know, especially at night. Then, then it's the bus to AC. Just four packs of cigs. God, stop that! Just wait until we all go on the Benson retreat, and I'm driving this us in this Buick. You're nope. gonna love it. Well, uh, yep. If and when that happens, I'm sure we would all hypothetically love it. Uh, we'll see. I think I have a conflict that day, but you know, we can always we can always discuss it. We got it. We got to run. I've got to go. Christine's got to zip home to see if her Buick's come in yet. Plus, it's almost 6 o'clock, which means it's way past her dinner time. It's the Guy Benson Show back here tomorrow, same time, same place. We'll talk to you then. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.